Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. So today, as we are recording this, it is Easter Sunday. So if that is something that you and your family celebrate, we wish you all a very happy Easter. Yeah, and I don't know how Passover works, but I know that just happened also. And so if that's what you celebrate, happy Passover. I'm really sorry. I don't know how it works. Um, But I do hope you had a happy one. Yes, absolutely. Happy Passover. Happy spring equinox. Whatever you celebrate, we hope that you are enjoying it. Happy quarantine. Yes, still happy quarantine, like always. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, as I think I mentioned before, Andrew and I have been trying to to get takeout from some of our local restaurants to kind of help them during this time and make sure that they're able to like stay in business and all that good stuff. So last night we went to our favorite local Chinese place, and it's called Beijing on Grove, and it's delicious, and the meal that I get is like, it lasts me like three full meals, like not even like a snack meal or like a a small lunch meal, like a full three meals. (laughs) So I get the Chinese eggplant, and last night I also got shrimp in it, and it was delicious, and it's always come with bell peppers. So I've like eaten away, it's never come with any other peppers, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm eating away, and so obviously I see this, like, red pepper, and I'm not, like, intently staring at my food as I eat it, so I just, like, scoop it all into my mouth. Courtney, we all know how great I am not with spicy food, and this was not a bell pepper. I don't know what it was, but it was... It was like red? A, yes. It was, like, a, like a chili-looking thing, <laughs> but, like, but it was, like, big. Yeah. I don't know, but... <laughs> I don't... I don't know what pepper that is, but... Um, I don't know, but I'm just, like, eating along, and I'm like, oh my god, this was not a bell pepper, and then I, like, made sure and pick out the other ones that were in there, because now I'm, like, looking at my food and seeing that there's different peppers in there, and for the rest of the night, I was, like, coughing and, like, phlegmy, and, like, my nose was, like, pouring, Oh my god. And so everyone knows also, like, I put hot sauce on everything i put hot sauce on spaghetti like i will make like the broccoli cheese and rice vegetables and i like douse it with hot i put hot sauce on everything (laughs) but jacqueline cannot do hot sauce (laughs) nope nope i like a nice mild spice level um like i don't need like bland food but i'm not about like like a a super spicy (laughs) no yeah, so Andrew was making fun of me because the rest of the night I'm just, like, coughing and I'm, like, blowing my nose. Like, my nose is all stuffed up and I'm just, like, what just happened to me? Oh, gosh. That is so funny. Yeah, so when um, Courtney and I got on FaceTime this morning, I started to tell her the story and I was like, no, wait, let me save this because I think everyone would appreciate it, so. Yeah, that's uh, a good story. <laughs> Then also, when we get on FaceTime this morning, Courtney's trying to spook me out at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. (laughs) I spooked myself, okay? Well, you spooked both of us. So, I had been just, like, I got my setup, and I was like, okay, like, I'll just wait on Jacqueline, and I was, like, scrolling through Instagram, and I had clicked on a story, and then she called me, and so I answered it. But then I hear talking, and it's like this, talking, and I think it was talking about Tiger King, because it was like, and she murdered her husband and put him in the meat grinder, and it was talking like that, but I was like, Jacqueline, what is that? Like, what is playing in the background, Okay, in your room? Courtney did not say, what is playing? (laughs) She just said, Jacqueline, what is that? What is that? And I'm like, oh God, I don't know. And so I'm like, 
looking in like the corner of my room in the phone, but I'm not going to like turn around and look behind me because I'm like, I don't know. What is it, Courtney? What is it? But yeah, I just heard like noise and I was like, what is this? And then I was like, oh, it's somehow Instagram was still playing in the background, even though I'd answered a FaceTime, which I didn't know was a thing. Which is very weird. I, I don't know. Yeah. So quarantine's um, getting to us guys so yeah I didn't do anything yesterday because I was hung over <laughs> Kevin and I we went a little overboard <laughs> you know it happens sometimes you just gotta it happens but I was like what better time to get kind of drunk because we're home we're not going anywhere exactly and then the next day I was kind of hung over and I got to just chill on my couch all day and I didn't feel bad about it because I couldn't do anything else exactly like I'm stuck here anyway so we might as well and then we ordered pizza Pizza sounds good. Yeah. So today we are covering um, this series of murders has a couple of different like names that people use, but most people use the Michigan murders. Um, so this was a story that neither of us were familiar with. Um, it was a book that I actually had on my to read list. I want to say Georgia from um, my favorite murder recommended it. Mm -hmm. So I put it on my list like, I don't know, a year ago. Um, and I have... I get these emails from, I can't remember what the site is, but I have a, um, a Nook app, and so anytime, like, Barnes & Noble ebooks are, like, super discounted, they'll, like, send me daily emails letting me know, like, books that are in my, like, interested categories or whatever. So anyway, so this book came up for 99 cents, and I was like, oh, well, gotta get this. So we're like, well, let's do an episode on this, and it was, it was super interesting. I didn't know the story. Um, so that book was called The Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes. Um, and then we also looked at an article from the Ann Arbor District Library called The Coed Murders, um, as well as an article written fairly recently um, by the Detroit Free Press. So we'll get into a little bit about kind of some, most, some more recent updates at the end of um, next week's episode, because this one has a lot to it. So it's actually going to be a two-parter. Um, so you will get part one today. Um, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you will get both parts today as a little thank you for being willing to donate a little money to us to make this podcast better. Um, and we'll make sure and get an additional bonus episode out for you guys next week so you're not having to go without an episode for a week. Um, but for everyone else, you'll get part one today and part one next week. Yep, and so between 1967 and 1969, there was a series of crimes in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, Michigan. There are at least seven known female victims who were abducted, raped, beaten, and murdered by the man who'd become known as the Ypsilanti Ripper, the Michigan Murderer, and the Coed Killer. So on July 10th, 1967, in Ypsilanti, uh, Sandra Fleeser receives a phone call from her sister Mary's roommate asking if she's seen Mary, who didn't come home last night. She also didn't show up to her job that morning. Mary's mother, Teresa, goes to her apartment, um, and her car's parked, but it's not in its usual spot. Um, everything inside the apartment does look normal, but her purse with her driver's license is left at home. Um, they don't know where her car keys or her house keys are. And her roommate did say she last saw her wearing a polka dot sundress and some straw sandals when she last left the apartment. So the day before, on July 9th, uh, Mary had woken up. She'd gone to mass. She'd, you know, gone to work. Just a usual morning. Um, and so she did get to work by about 8 on campus. 
So Sandra, her sister called and was like, hey, me and my friend, we're going to go to Silver Lake later. Like, do you want to come meet us? And Mary really wanted to, um, but she did hit traffic and she wasn't able to get there until after 5 p.m. And at that point, state troopers did turn her away because parking was full. So this is the 60s where there's no cell phones. <laughs> so she was like, I don't know what to do. I'll just drive to another access point. Maybe they're there. Maybe they were turned away. We'll just see. So she went and she played her guitar for a few people on the beach until 6.30. And then she did arrive home a little after 8 p.m. So she left for a walk around 8.20 p.m. And the campus police did see her walking alone at around 8.45. They did recognize her because she worked on campus. So about 5 to 10 minutes later, a family friend was sitting on his porch and said he saw her walk by towards her apartment. Um, he saw a man in like a bluish gray car pull up and say something to her. She shook her head and so he kept driving. So then the driver kind of blocked her path and she walked around it and then he eventually drove off. So according to her roommate, she hadn't come home, um, as she said when she called Sandra. And there were no other known sightings of Mary after this interaction um, with the car that her family friend saw. So... About a month later, on August 7th, there's two teenage boys, um, and they find a pretty badly decomposed body on an abandoned farm near their property. So police did find a straw shoe, and then they later did find a polka dot dress under some trash. Um, so the boys did report they heard a car drive away from the area before they went over there, and they saw fresh tire tracks, um, but the body had appeared that it had been there a while. And uh, so... Police don't know if, you know, the killer was come visiting the body. You know, we know sometimes, especially serial killers, like to do that. Wherever they dump them, the victim's grave, they'll come visit it because they're psychopaths. Anyway, but they, uh, so they confirmed it was Mary by her dental records because her body was just too badly decomposed. So the autopsy showed 30 lacerations in her chest and abdomen. Mm -hmm. Some of them may have been from animals, but at least 20 were from a knife. Her extremities were missing, but they don't know since she had been there a while if those were removed before or just eaten by animals. And her lower leg bones did appear to be smashed instead of chewed, so there is signs that she'd likely been beaten as well. So while her body is at the funeral home, um, they call her parents and ask if they know a young man in a bluish gray car, and they say no. But this man had come to the funeral home asking if he could see Mary and take a picture of her. Which is very weird, because we said she was very badly decomposed. It's not like, you know, a funeral of someone who dies maybe just of old age, and, you know, you're, you're, you're all fixed up, and they put the makeup and all that. It's not that she was very badly decomposed. I don't know who would want a picture of this. <laughs> and it, for it to be a stranger, like, it, it's one thing if it's your family or, like, your boyfriend, a very close friend, but for someone that the family doesn't know or recognize to show up at a funeral home asking to take a picture of their daughter's body. Um, that's a huge red flag. And so the, fu just to make sure I'm right. So the funeral home, like let them take the picture and then after call. No, 
No, he made them leave, but, like, the guy that he, like, he was like, no, like, you can't do that, you have to leave, but the guy... Oh, so he didn't let her take a picture. Yeah, he did not let her okay. take a picture, um, but the guy that he spoke to was new, so he didn't think, like, maybe I should get a description of this guy, because this is fucking weird. Okay. Like, he was just like, no, you gotta leave, and then when they told the police, the police were like, well, what did he look like? Obviously, this girl was murdered, like, why yeah. did you not, you know, so yeah. Okay, I'm just checking, y'all, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so they didn't get the description, said he was a 20s average looking white guy which is every white guy so um i did find in my research her family does have a website that is dedicated to her it's uh maryfleezer.com that's f-l-e-s-z-a-r um so it talks about her life um from birth to her death and it's it's just very chilling seeing pictures of her and knowing about all that um but i do like that her family has this website just to always remember her Mm mm-hmm on July 1st, 1968, so like a year later, police receive a call at 1.47 a.m. Her 21-year-old roommate, Joan Shell, had arrived home in Ypsilanti at 9.15 the previous night from her parents' house. Um, her friend, so the book did change a few names, so in the book she's called Celia Annis. We don't know her real name, um, but we will refer to her as Celia from this point on. Um, in Ann Arbor had called her and so she decided to take the last bus of the night to go stay with her so the greyhound bus was supposed to leave at 10 30 p.m but by 10 45 the bus had not arrived um i've ridden a greyhound <laughs> this is 100 percent normal they run on their own time <laughs> like i went to see jacqueline and it was like a seven and a half hour trip yep. that took like yep. 14 hours <laughs> so <laughs> they run on their own time <laughs> So, but Joan decided to hitch a ride. Um, I did look it up. The cities are only about like eight miles apart, which is about like a 20 minute drive. So I didn't really think hitchhiking. I mean, this is the 60s when people hitchhiked. Um, So that's not like crazy to find someone who's going there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's according to Google Maps. I looked that up. Thank you, Google Maps. (laughs) Um, So three guys pulled up in a red car with a black vinyl top and offered her a ride. Um, the man who got out was like 20 ish. He was six feet tall. He had dark hair. He had a green Eastern Michigan university t-shirt, um, some light colored dungarees (laughs) and white tennis shoes. Yeah. You can tell this book was written in the, what is it? Seventies? Dungarees. Dungarees. All right. I hope we're saying that right. Did you look that up? Nope. Okay. I don't know how to say it either. That sounds good to me. If we mispronounce that, we apologize. Let us know. Yeah. If that's the worst thing, if I get Ypsilanti right and dungarees wrong, that's fine. (laughs) So Joan told her friend she would call her as soon as she arrived in Ann Arbor. So at 1230, Celia called and asked if Joan had changed her mind because she had, you know, shown up. Um, And with no word by 147 a.m., the friend called the police. And so police interview her friends and they ask if she had a boyfriend and they say, yeah, she's seeing this guy, but they haven't been dating that long. His name was Don Schultz, and he was currently AWOL from the Army. And he'd been AWOL before. Um, he only joined the Army, really, to get out of breaking and entering charge in prison time. On July 3rd, the Ypsilanti Press ran a story about Joan missing. Um, and later that night, Don calls Joan's parents and says, you know, she's not with me. I haven't seen her. So, police do speculate he's probably close by, since he did see the paper, Mm -hmm. Um, but he doesn't tell him where he is, and he just hangs up. And I, like, that was interesting to me, reading it set in this time, where obviously, today, if something is 
in the news, you can find it worldwide that day, but at that time, because he called them that night, they're like, well, he has to be local, because how else would he see a local newspaper? So, I just kind of thought that was an interesting, like, time type thing that would be different today. Yeah, because I was even telling Jacqueline last night when I was um, doing some of the, like, Mm follow-up research, just making sure I had everything, all my ducks in a row. Um, I was trying to look for Mary's family's name, and I actually came across a 1969 news article from the Ypsilanti Press, Mm -hmm. and I could read the clip that was in, it was like a picture of the newspaper. So that's super cool about modern technology, because I can do that, but back then, there's no way you could do that. (laughs) Yeah, it's so cool that we have like so much information at our fingertips right now. So... Two witnesses do respond to the story in the paper and confirm Joan's friend's story of the car and three men. So one girl saw them drive in the opposite direction of Ann Arbor. And the EMU, which is the Eastern Michigan University campus patrolman, reports after 11 p.m. finding three men inside the student union building that was closed making a phone call on a payphone, and he sent them outside. So he saw them get into a car meeting the description. Um, They sat there a while and then drove away. There wasn't any sign of a struggle of them getting into the building, so one of the men must have had a key or likely been a student. Mm -hmm. So two students from the school come forward, and they said they thought they recognized Joan out the night she disappeared with a guy from a local frat, John Norman Collins. But the timeline they gave didn't match what Joan's friend had said. So they interviewed John, and he said he didn't know Joan. He'd been out of town at his mother's house that weekend, um, said he got home a little after midnight and they could check with his neighbor and his friend Arnold because he spoke with him before going to bed. He didn't drive a car that met the description and he was also the nephew of a local police officer, David Leck, who vouched for him. So on that Friday, uh, construction workers northeast of Ann Arbor smelled something really bad and they find a decomposing body of a woman it was clear from the maggots and insects that um she'd been decomposing from a few days based on decomposition um but she also appeared to kind of be freshly killed um so there was dried blood all over the body but nowhere on the ground um so dawn her boyfriend did call the police that day. He was picked up at Celia's apartment at around 435 that day. Uh, he was the one that Joan had called that night when she went to Ann Arbor. So she was coming to see her boyfriend. Which makes a lot more sense than your random girlfriend just calling you at like 1030 at night being like, oh, take a bus here to spend the night with me. Yeah. Like, so when you find out that it was her boyfriend, you're like, oh, that makes a bit more sense. And yeah. then it also kind of makes sense why he immediately called her family and was like, look, she's not with me. I don't know anything. Yeah. You know, because he is AWOL from the army. So he's like under the radar and everything. But he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But wait, I didn't kill her. So. Yeah. Just so you know. was <laughs> me. Okay. So the autopsy did find there was 25 stab wounds in the torso, 22 in the front and three in the back. Um, It was probably a knife that was about four inches long, and there was seminal fluid found in her vagina. Um, She was wearing jewelry consistent with what her roommate said she was wearing when she disappeared, and dental records did confirm the identity the next day. So she was estimated dead at around six days. Um, In the autopsy, the contents of her stomach show that the last food she ate was what she'd been eating at her parents' house the night before. Mm -hmm. So the top of her body, as I said, was very decomposed. Um... It was clear that the maggots and insects had had a few days to work on that decomp. Um, But the lower two-thirds 
of her body were preserved as if it, they were like had been in a cooler and they didn't know if it was maybe like in a cellar but it was two very different stages of decomp mm-hmm. and in the book too they mentioned that oh well maybe was like the top half of her body exposed and the lower half like covered with a sheet or something but even then like it's july you know so I could maybe see if it was, like, winter and maybe, like, the top half was decomposing in the sun, but it was still cool outside. So if the body, if the lower half of the body was covered up, maybe it would stay a little more preserved. But it's July, so, like, you're going to have to have something more than just, like, a small covering to keep the body as preserved as it was after, like, three days. Yeah, and I mean, this is the 60s. They do know about decomposition to an extent. Um, Yes. But as we know, like, the anthropological research facility that really was started up and did that, did not come around until, like, 1971. Mm -hmm. And that's when they started really researching, like, well, if we put it in the sun, if we put it in the shade, if all these other things. So this could just be the police being like, we have no idea, we've never seen this, there's no research on this, so Mm -hmm. this is what it could be. But definitely unusual that it would be so different from top to bottom. Yeah, definitely. Even without knowing exactly how it was covered or hidden or whatever but it's like "Mm, this was this body wasn't just left here since then basically yeah so the police do rule out her boyfriend as a suspect he's turned back over to the army um there's some rewards set up for any good information but they don't get any tips so a few months later uh, on march 21st 1969 in denton township michigan um that's four miles east of ypsilanti there's a 13 year old boy and he wakes up his mom he's like I was walking to the bus stop and I found this box. Um, So taped to the box is an unsealed birthday card that said, Dearest Mom, sorry I'm late, but in a hundred years you'll never know the difference. I love you, Jane. Um, And inside are what appears to be some law school work and some blue fuzzy slippers. And there were two drops of wet blood on them. Um, She gets her car to go after her son, who's now walking to the bus stop, and she sees about a body about 50 yards from the end of her driveway um, and it's just inside a cemetery gate um, and it's covered by a yellow raincoat and a gray sheet so she called the police um, and an overnight bag is found near the body and also a man's muddy shoe print and some fresh tire tracks near the gate of the cemetery so the woman who found the body said she did notice a white station wagon pulling out of the cemetery around midnight the night before um, but she said teenagers park there sometimes you know Maybe a little bit of, like a not like a lover's lane because it's a cemetery, but well, hanky panky in the sixties. <laughs> oh lord. <laughs> okay, <laughs> hanky panky. I mean, the station wagons were pretty roomy in the back. Like, pretty roomy. You don't need a hotel room. <laughs> Maybe not in a cemetery because that's kind of weird. But you know, to each of them. <laughs> um, so she really didn't think anything of a car being there. Um, and teenagers do report they saw a green station wagon wagon driving around the area at dusk the night before. So the autopsy shows there was two gunshot wounds to the head from a 22, and there's some pantyhose around her neck. Um, they estimate time of death is probably between midnight and 3 a.m., and they do find the body is of a woman named Jane Mixer. Jane Mixer was a law student at University of Michigan, and she was expected to be in Mus- Muskegon, which is about 165 miles from Ann Arbor, that Thursday night to celebrate her mom's birthday over a long weekend away from school. So she hadn't arrived by 11 p.m. So her father called her boyfriend and said, I saw her at school around 6 p.m. 
Um, and she said her ride should be there any minute. So she'd put up a notice um, in the student union looking for a ride, and someone had responded. Um, and Jane was planning on telling her parents that weekend that she was going to marry her boyfriend. Which is super sad. Yeah, that is really sad. But also, like, the putting up a notice for a ride in the student union is still a thing. Like, I knew pe- Yeah, it was someone I was friends with at, like, UT, and he was going home and didn't have a ride, and so he just was, like... He found someone who was going to the same place and was like, I'll split gas with you. Yeah. They didn't know each other. They just rode together. <laughs> so. Which, like, at a school setting, you feel like that's safe, you know? Like, yeah. we're all just a bunch of broke college students and we do what we can to get by. And, hey, are you going somewhere? Like, can I have a ride? No big deal. Because they, yeah, they would get, like, I mean, up to three or four people would probably just ride together and be like, mm-hmm. hey, we all only have to contribute like $20 in gas and yeah you can help me drive like we can get there faster so the police are obviously suspecting that um that the suspect is maybe a student because of this but Mm -hmm. it's not like those areas are students only I mean yeah most places like you know you have to know where you're going but you can walk on any college campus and get into these like common areas for the most part so it's like he may be a student but he may not be he may be somebody that's just lurking for women who are students yeah so could even be like an employee somewhere, like a yeah, like a professor, or a janitor. I mean, there's tons of people on a college campus. Yes, yes, absolutely. So her father called Muskegon Police at 1:30 a.m. on Friday morning. Um, the missing person information was sent out to all the police stations in the area. One of the officers who was called to the scene, um, he did remember seeing it that morning and did suspect it was her. So. On her desk in her dorm, police found a note written by Jane that said David Hansen leaving 6.30 p.m. Um, The school directory was next to it and open to Hansen, probably so she could see what he looked like. Uh, Can I just say, I read that as IVG period, and I'm like, I don't know what this means, but I can gather that she means that they're leaving at 6.30, and I didn't put together that that was an L until you just said leaving. Anyway. (laughs) You wrote that note. I know. That's what it said in the book. Like It was literally word for word, LVG period, but I read it as like capital I-V-G period, and I was like, that's weird. Maybe that's just some slang for, I don't know. Anyway. Look, she's she's a busy student. She ain't got time to write leaving. I write in that whole word. LVG. Which also, like shorthand was a thing then, obviously, because computers didn't exist where like there are specific like shortened versions of words that are like well known you know what I mean yeah I don't know if that's shorthand I just know my mom knew shorthand and so that was like a thing anyway (laughs) (laughs) just a little side note I was like oh that's what that means (laughs) whoops okay and so she had an address for Hanson and it was at a frat house nearby so only a few people in this frat house and they said David was in a theater group that was performing tonight So they searched his room, but they didn't find any connection to Jane. So they asked the roommates about David's movements. They said they saw him leaving the dining hall a little after 6.30 p.m. And they had, you know, drank a few beers together around midnight and they went to bed around like 1 a.m. So they did see that he had received a call from Jane at like 6.35 looking for David. And the roommates were like, I think you might have the wrong david or the wrong person you know he's in a theater production that night there's no way he could give you a ride um and police did verify it wasn't him so on march 25th which is just a few days after jane's body was found another corpse is found in the woods on the outskirts of the city um less than a quarter mile from where joan's body was found last summer um 
So this body was found by construction workers and by the autopsy they determined that she had been killed late on the night of the 23rd or early on the morning of the 24th. Um, so half of her face was crushed in um, and her body was covered in welts. Um, they believe that maybe she was beaten by something like a belt buckle um, and there were also marks like straps on her upper body as if she had been held down. Um, and trigger warning here, there was also a large tree branch that was shoved all the way into her vagina and there was a cloth that was stuffed so deep into her mouth that like police didn't even see it until like during the autopsy like it was shoved like past like the opening of her throat. Oh, yeah. Which is just disgusting. So it took police a while to find out um, who this was the body of, but they finally tied it to um, a 16-year-old named Marilyn Skelton. Um, so she was originally from Romulus and had recently moved to Flint, Michigan. Um, and she was in Ypsilanti visiting with her friends that weekend. Um, and they... When they interviewed her friends, they said that she was supposed to meet back up with them, and then she never did. So, um, I think her and her father had gone back to um, Romulus to pick up a few things, like, because they were in the process of moving, and so they were on the way to Flint, and she's like, hey, would you drop me off in Ypsilanti so I can hang out with my friends? Um, and they had, like, a very, like, strained relationship, um, because she did have a problem with drugs, and she, you know, just kind of... 16-year-old, like, acting out, testing her limits, you know. Um, from what everyone says, like, she was really a good kid who was, like, trying to get better, but she just hung out with the wrong crowd. Um, yeah. And so I feel so bad for her father because he, like, reports they're, like, having this conversation in the car, and he's like, you know, okay, whatever, just go hang out with your friends. So he, like, pulls over, and it says, like, on the side of the road, but I'm sure it was, like, close to where she was going. Um, it's not like he just, like, dumped her on the side of the road and was like, bye. Um, so he let her off there, and she was supposed to walk and meet up with her friends, and she was never seen again. Um, so that's super sad. Um, so she mm -hmm. had been in communication with a counselor at her school, and she was like, look, like, I want to get help. Um, you know, I started with just, like, you know, smoking pot and all this stuff, and now I'm doing, like, cocaine and these harder drugs, and I didn't really want to go down this path, but I need somebody to help me. So at this point, the police are like, okay, we think we have a serial killer on our hands. Um, so obviously the cases up until now, so, you know, you have one case, one summer, the following summer, another case, the next one was six months later, and this is, like, three days later. They're like, okay, like, these are all starting to tie in together, they're all in the same area, they're all young girls. Um, you know, the first two were college students. The third was a law student. Now this one's 16. But, you know, still young girls in the same area. So, like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And, like, bodies even dumped, like, around the same area. Like... Yeah. Like, they're found super close by. Um, but, I mean, because the timeline is so weird, you know, like, a whole year between the first two and then six months. But now we're looking at days. It's like, okay, if this is the same person, like, we feel like he's escalating. Um... But it was really after Marilyn's death that they start to think, like, okay, these are all connected. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, too, is he's getting away with it. So he's like, well, it doesn't matter if I don't put time between it. Like, they're not going to catch me. Yeah, exactly. And so for the first two um, that Courtney talked about, like I said, they were both young college students. So they were living in their own apartments. Um, but their parents' houses were, like, a few miles away. So, like, the house that they grew up in was super close to where their own apartment was. Um, both of them had been stabbed to death. So the third and fourth murders... Um, 
were different from the first two and also different from each other. Jane's murder was a little bit different um, because she was shot. She was older than the other ones had been, um, but, you know, still kind of in the same general realm, um, still sexually assaulted. So they're like, okay, we think that this is the same guy. But, like, Jane was clearly, if, you know, he is the, the fake David Hansen, uh-huh. it was very premeditated because he saw an opportunity where the others seem to just kind of be like, yes, this woman's walking or this woman's hitchhiking. And so they just pick him up opportunity. But this seems almost a little planned. Yeah. So this one does seem definitely different from the other two. So at this point, they're starting to wonder if there could be a connection to the Boston Strangler. Um, So that had happened a few years previously. And there was a man arrested for it, but there was also suspicions that he gave a false confession that it wasn't really him. So they're wondering like, you know, could this be, like, a similar type situation? Um, so Dr. Ames Roby was a forensic psychiatrist who had interviewed David Parker as a suspect in the Boston Stranglings in 1963 and 1964. Um, so David Parker is a pseudonym that was used in a book about the Boston Stranglings, um, and also in the Michigan Murders book. So I don't know what his real name was. So, um... Like I said, they did have a, um, someone arrested for the Boston Strangler. Um, that was Albert DeSalvo, um, but Dr. Roby did not believe that it was him. Um, he really was stuck on this David Parker guy. Um, so David Parker had assaulted his pregnant wife and had been arrested for disturbing the peace, making pipe bombs, selling drugs, just kind of a whole list of things. Um, so at this time, Dr. Roby was living and working in Michigan, and he's like flipping through the paper, and he sees David Parker's face on an Ann Arbor newspaper as a, Mich- a University of Michigan student. So he's like, what? Uh-oh. What is this guy doing here? Um, so he calls the police, and he tells them about it. Um, so they ask him to come in, talk a little bit about David. So the police don't tell him, but he was already on their list of suspects. Um, David was. So when Dr. Roby reached out to them, they were like, oh, perfect. Okay, let's see what information you have. Um, and so I guess David had been, like, bragging to his friends at the university about being a suspect in the Boston Strangling book. Um, that, like hey, you know, there's this book that says that it was me and this is, people think that I did it and kind of a weird thing to brag about. I feel like I would keep that to myself, but okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But when the police look into it more, they see that he did not move to Michigan until the fall of 1967. So that was after the first murder. So they're like, okay, if we can't tie you to all of them, can we really tie, you know. I mean, but I'm also wondering if he is going to the university, like, did he just visit and he was looking at the campus? I mean, yeah. I don't think it necessarily, like, completely rules him out that he wasn't living there. I mean, yeah. look at Israel Keys. He had kill kits all over America. True, true. But other things probably led to them being like, it's not him. Yeah. But police are suspicious of Dr. Roby because he also was in Boston at the time of those stranglings and is now in Michigan at the time of these murders. Um, So they're just kind of keeping an eye on him. Um, Obviously, they don't have anything like concrete to go off of, but he's definitely on their suspect list. Yeah. And I mean, that's like the perfect cover. Like, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. Like, you're gonna like, talk to me about your cases. Oh, it's actually me. Well, I don't know if it is him. Yep. But if it was, be pretty good. <laughs> um, so then on Wednesday, April 16th, um, another body is found in a rural area of Superior Township. Um, and so from the autopsy, they determined that um, this body has been dead less than 12 hours. Um, she was strangled with a black electrical cord. Um, she was raped. She had knife wounds across her torso and her throat was completely slit. 
Um, so she was only wearing a bra and a blouse. Um, so the rest of her clothes were missing. And she was later ID'd as missing 13-year-old Dawn Basm. Um, so Dawn had gone out the night before, a little after 6 p.m., um, to hang out with her friends, and her mom said that she was supposed to be home before dark, but she never returned. Um, so her mom reported her missing to police at 12.45 a.m., so that would have been Thursday morning. So they found that she had been killed very recently. The autopsy estimated that she died around 8 to 9 p.m., so fairly soon after she left her house. Um, so as the police are interviewing her friends that she had hung out with that night and people in the area, um, her friends say that she was with them until a little after 7 p.m., and then she started walking home. Um, and so there's a neighbor who I guess was, like, super into the trains. So, like, every day he would come out and, like, watch the trains go by and, like, wave to the conductor and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that train goes by at 7.25 p.m. And so he reported seeing her um, walking by at the time that the train went by. So that's why he knew it was exactly 7.25 Um and this was less than a half a mile from her house. So she was on her way home. Oh. Um, and her, I know, this one's so sad. Um, and her family and friends say that she would not have taken a ride from a stranger, that, like, she wouldn't have hitchhiked with anyone or anything like that. So because they're looking at such a short time frame and such a, um, a short distance between where she was last seen and where she was headed, police start looking around to see, like, are there any, like, rural areas that are kind of hidden away? Are there any... Um, like abandoned houses, you know, anything like that, that, because obviously you're going to need somewhere private to inflict the kind of torture that you inflicted on this girl. Um, so they're trying to find like, okay, there has to be something somewhere close by because she was killed so quickly after, um, she was last seen. Um, so less than a mile from Don's house, they see a deserted farmhouse. Um, and so when they investigate, they find a sweater that looked like what Don was reported to be wearing the last time she was seen. And in the barn of this farmhouse, they found a black electrical cord that matched what Don was strangled with. Um, so it was the same material. And then when they compared the ends, it seemed like they had been ripped off, like they could easily be fit back together, which isn't exact science. Um, I know that's used a lot in like the 60s to 80s with like, you know, tape torn off and little things like that. They're like, oh, it lines up. Yeah, like the I-5 killer. That was a lot. Yes. Um, so so that's not something that's like, oh, I can 100% convict you based on just this. It's just kind yeah. of a little piece that helps. Because I'm like, how can you know unless it's something like super crazy, like it's really jagged yes. and you put it together, like how do you know? And like, like things kind of tear the same way. What if the tape, you know how tape is, like tape closes. So I'm like, how do you like... Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to throw it out there that it's not like an exact science, but it is pretty clear, um, obviously, with her clothing. Which makes me think we should definitely do a Patreon episode on the history of police investigations and like... Yes. Like, you know how like cops didn't have to stop smoking at crime scenes until like... Yeah. The late 90s and stuff? We should do a Patreon. Let me know, Patreons, if you want that. And how things have evolved. Yes, let us know what you guys think. And so when they find this farmhouse, there is a cellar. So remember when um, Joan's body was found, they saw that the top half of her body was really decomposed, but the bottom half wasn't. And so they thought maybe there was some kind of, like, cellar that, like, her body could have been, like, half out of it, half in, like, the bottom half in, like, a cool area, something like that. So this fits their theory about um, Joan from last summer, that there is a cellar here. Um, so police had planned to keep this development a secret because they're like, okay, clearly this is somewhere that the killer is comfortable. We think that he's returning to 
the bodies. Maybe he's returning to the scene of the crimes. So, like, let's not tell anybody that we found this house and we'll just, like, stake it out and then see who comes back here. Um, but journalists were all over the place and the media leaked it. Yeah. So, like, okay, well, there goes that. Um, but they still decided to stay close by just in case. Like, maybe he hasn't seen it. Maybe he doesn't care and he's testing police anyway. So, we're still going to stay by and stake out the place. That week, um, the Ypsilanti Press published a letter by Mary's sister, um, which was, like, super sad. Like, she just wrote about, like, what that was like for her family, um, and she urged the public to come forward if they have any information. So, a week after Dawn's body was discovered, the police are back in the farmhouse, and they find an earring and a scrap of cloth in the basement that multiple officers say were not there before. Um, but like I said, police are still staking out the farmhouse at this time. So these items both matched what Marilyn had been found to be wearing the last time she was seen. So now they have some kind of connection to a previous case that they're really starting to think these are all the same person. Um, and multiple police swear that these items were not in the barn before. Um, and so they think that somehow the killer must have like snuck in and gone to the area while police were still sitting there, but somehow like wasn't seen. So then, on May 13th, the farmhouse was burned to the ground. Um, so they found that local teenagers were the arsons, and... Fucking teenagers, man. Right, like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and so they're like, they investigated, they don't think that they have anything to do with it, that they were just, like, stupid teens setting this building on fire. Um, but a local journalist who arrived, like, right after everything happened, found that there were five lilacs that were, like, perfectly cut and just, like, laid out in a row in front of the burned house. And at this point, we have five bodies. So this is super creepy, super eerie. And if that's a coincidence, it's a strong coincidence. Yeah. So the police, like, question the hell out of um, these teenagers because they're like, okay, you set this house on fire. You put, And they're like, no, we swear we didn't do anything with the flowers. So now police are suspicious of this journalist because he is, like, always the first one on the scene. Like, he has, like, a cop, uh, like, a police scanner. So he hears when something's happening, and he arrives, like, with the police. Um, they think that he has leaked some of the media stuff before that's, you know, hurt in their investigations, and he is the one that finds these lilacs. So they're like, did you find them or did you put them there? So yeah, he is now added to the suspect list. Because we know, especially serial killers, they like to, like, flaunt what they've done. Yeah. So to be like, here's five lilacs. Look at this. Look at it. Eh, eh, eh. Look at it. It's a game. Like, Look what I'm doing, and look what, and you haven't caught me, nanana boo boo. Stick your head in doo doo. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Just drown in doo doo, sir. <laughs> Please, sir. <laughs> um, so then on June 9th, um, which is a couple of months later, um, these teenagers are working for a landscaping business, and they find a body on a back road about six miles outside of Ann Arbor. Um, so they found that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head, but she had been stabbed all over her body. Um, they found a single purple shoe that was nearby, and so police um, were looking around to see, like, was anything left, like, around the area. Um, and five miles from where her body was found, they found, like, a commercial gravel pit, and there were a pair of women's loafers um, that they, like, tried on the victim's feet, and they were found to fit, so... Again, not exact science, but maybe these were hers. Um, but it was, you know, two pairs, and they found a random purple shoe near the body. So that was interesting. They also found some red buttons that matched those on the victim's shirt that had dried blood on them. Um, and so, you know, they're looking all over. They're questioning people. They just have no idea who this person is. No one of this, you know, age, gender, race has been reported missing. Um, 
So, unfortunately, what they do is they release a photo of her body to the media because they're like, we don't know who this is. We need to identify her. Um, so, they got just her face and they tried to make her look as, you know, like, put together as possible. Like, they, they had her face turned where you couldn't see, like, where she was beaten and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a couple comes to the police station and they're like, I think this is our roommate, Alice Kalam. I'm not, like, for sure. It's hard to tell. Like, they were super shaken up. But they said that Alice had not returned home. Um, They hadn't seen her in a couple of days. And they're like, I'm pretty sure this was her. So, unfortunately, that night, um, I can't remember how far away it was. Like, maybe about an hour or so away. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this couple, this older couple is reading the newspaper. And they come across this photo of this body. And they recognize it as their daughter, Alice. Which just, like, broke my heart. Like, I just can't even imagine. You're just, like, looking through the paper and you find this, like, hey, this is a Jane Doe we're trying to identify. And you're like, oh, this is my daughter. Um, Yeah, I really can't imagine. That would be horrific. (sighs) And so they said that they, like, wrote letters back and forth all the time. Obviously, it's going to take a couple of days, you know, from one letter to get somewhere. Um, And so they actually received a letter after she was found that she had sent, like, the day before she died. So, like, they got this letter in the mail from her afterwards. Um, and so inside Alice's apartment, her purse and her wallet were still there, and there was an empty shoebox on the floor. And so when they went to the store um, that that shoebox came from, the clerk at the store remembers a woman that matched Alice's description buying a pair of purple pumps um, that Saturday. So again, they found one purple pump that was outside of her body. And so her elderly neighbors report that they ran into Alice coming into her apartment with shopping bags about 8.30 that night, and her friend said that she was going to a party later. Um, So it looked like she had gone out shopping that day. She had some new clothes for her party. Her neighbor saw her coming home at 8.30, so it's suspected that she left the house sometime after 8.30 to go to this party. Um, So they interviewed a bunch of people at the party, and at first a a lot of people say, oh yeah, we saw her, we saw her with these guys, she was here until about 2.30, and then she left, and these are people that just like sort of knew her, and then they interviewed one of her close friends, and he was like, no, I was at this party and she never showed up. And so as they look into it a little bit more, they find that there's another girl at the party who looks a lot like Alice, and so they're like, Mm -hmm. okay, so we can't be for sure if people are seeing her and they thought that it was Alice, or if they... Or if Alice was never here. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a tricky point for them in the investigation because they don't know what kind of timeline they're looking at. You know, did she arrive at this party as half the people say or did she never make it like the other half say? Yeah. And so also clearly, you know, she'd bought in these purple pumps mm-hmm. and they did find a purple shoe near her body. But they also found the women's loafers. Was it like she just wore the loafers out and was going to change? Yeah. Or something like that? Is that what they're thinking? I guess like she, you know, she was bought these new shoes and, you know, you don't want to wear your heels to where you're going. Maybe she was going to change when she got there. And, you know, Jacqueline and I both know how to drive stick shifts and wearing pumps and driving a stick shift is not... Nope. You can't do it. Never. And I'm sure all the cars back here were stick shifts, so... Yeah, or, you know, we don't know how far away it was. Like, was she walking? And obviously you don't want to walk in pumps, so you're just going to carry your shoes. That's true, too. So, the police are kind of at a standstill at this point. Um, so that's where we're going to stop for today's episode, and so in next week's episode, or the episode that you'll have available right after this, if you are a Patreon subscriber, um, we are going to get into the final murder, and then the investigation and trial of who they found to be responsible for these murders. So. Yeah, so this is a bummer, because you're getting all the sad details, and not 
we got the guy. So yep. this one, this one's a bummer, but uh, their stories are important and need to be told. Yes. And we'll try to give you guys some closure, hopefully, in next week's episode. Yes. Um, so, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? Okay, my perk of the week, I want to give a shout out to one of my friends. His name is John. Um, so him and Kevin were friends, like, before we started dating, and then... Um, when Kevin and I started dating, like, I became friends with him as well, and since day one of the podcast, he listens to, like, every episode, every week, and he's always, like, texting me about the case, or, you know, hey, your audio messed up, I'm like, thanks, (laughs) we're working on it, it. (laughs) appreciate it, (laughs) Um, but yeah, he's always given that, like, constructive feedback and all that, and it's really nice, and I love that he, like, supports us, and it sucks with this quarantine, because he's usually, like, every weekend, like, at our apartment, like, hanging out with us, and now... Mm-hmm. we miss him and miss him coming over but I just want to give him a shout out because he's been dedicated since day one and that's the kind of friendship you need in your life <laughs> yes hi John and thank you for listening yes. we appreciate you and Jacqueline what's your perk of the week so my perk of the week Courtney um as you're so surprised to hear Friday night we had a game night we did uh, <laughs> So it was um, me and Courtney and our best friend Tiffany and all of our significant others. And so we got like an online, like Tiffany got like an online game pack. And so we were all able to like Zoom and play this game. And then there's also an app called House Party, um, which you can like see everyone's face and also play the game. And so it was just a good time. So we're trying to you know, still engage with each other as much as we can during social distancing, but we all had our alcoholic beverages, and we... Hence the hangover yesterday. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was just a really good time, so we just all played our games and got to hang out with each other and, you know, feel like we're in the same room together, so it was good. Yeah, it was really nice to get some human interaction. <laughs> Very much so. All right, so I guess that's it for this week. Um, and again, remember, if you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, you can do so at patreon.com slash caffeinatedcrimes, and you can get part two of this episode immediately. So there's that to look forward to. Um, you can also find us on Instagram at caffeinatedcrimespod, or you can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail. Yeah, definitely. And um, also, forgot to mention earlier, John is single and he knows how to cook. So, ladies, if you're looking for a man, hit him up because hopefully he'll thank me for that. Anyway. Let us, let us know. We'll, we'll get his contact information for you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll send a letter. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So, you guys, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.